had noted some of the doctrines like the providence of God and also the Holy Spirit so far. And we're going to look at just the eighth chapter, look at the entire eighth chapter and notice these things in the chapter in the chapter about the providence of God and also the working of the Holy Spirit and also some other things about conversion at this time. Let's see, I'll start with you, Barbara. We'll start here and let's go ahead and let's see, read uh, through uh, the uh, let's see here, where be the through the first eight verses and then the second part will be 9 through 25, and then the third part, 26 through 39. So let's just go ahead and read those first, uh, first eight verses. And Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the cloud, crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shirks, evil spirits came out of many and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Okay, now we had skipped over, and we'll come back eventually to that the seventh chapter where Stephen is stoned to death, and we're first introduced now to Saul, who gave approval to his death. In fact, at this time, he's doing everything he can to, to stamp out Christianity. And then... The statement there, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church. As you read statements like that, think on uh, like Romans 8, verse 28. Uh, God causes all things to work together for the good of those that love him. And it's just one more passage letting you know that obviously that is spiritual things. And that any time that a person takes things uh, in this life, whether they're happening good for you or bad... And, and tries to use, invoke that passage, he just simply is, is misusing it. That, uh, that uh, Paul was a, an apostle, and he had an ailment that was so bad he petitioned God three times for. Timothy was a sick man with many infirmities. And then all the way through here, we read about the apostles and others being persecuted. And here the church uh, is scattered with a great persecution. And yet you've got that statement that God causes all things to work together good for those that love him. But then notice what happened in that context so far as the providence of God is concerned. They did the persecuting on their own. God doesn't tamper with anybody's free will or choice. But then look at the end result in verse 4. So those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And so... These people were converted going all the way back to the day of Pentecost. And thousands had been converted there in Jerusalem. But it seems to be at this point in time they're just staying right there after their conversion and all the apostles are there. And through the persecution that came on them, they will scatter. And these people are from all over the Roman world and every place they go, they take that information. So we see that in the spreading of the information, 
that from the providence of God we saw in, in uh, chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost that it was God who gave the command in the law of Moses that three times a year that the Jews came together at a central location at Jerusalem. And that's why we have them from all these nations under heaven gathered there on the day of Pentecost and also at the time of the Passover. So at the death of Jesus, his resurrection, and also the birth of the church, we've got Jews from all over the entire Roman Empire that are there because of a command that God gave back in the law of Moses. Also, it was the carrying away of the Jews into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians that led to their being scattered. And when that happened, the Jews looked on it as a very negative experience. God used it to discipline them at the time. And now, hundreds of years later, that event that was a negative experience when Babylon conquered Jerusalem and scattered them has now proved to be something that put them all over the known world. They then come home to Jerusalem, and the gospel is preached on Pentecost, and now a third event happens that, that is completely beyond their control. In other words, the, the given of the command by, to Moses for them to all come to Jerusalem to worship those three times a year, that was beyond the control of the people. The fact that they were scattered uh, in the Babylonian captivity was beyond the control of the people at this time. And the fact that the persecution uh, uh, causes them to be scattered now is beyond their control. And so there are three things where the providence of God is involved in, two of the three things appear to be very negative to the believer in God, whether it's being scattered back then by the Babylonians or it's being scattered here through persecution, that if you had been a believer in God, you would have looked at it as a very negative experience, and yet it was part of the providence of God in getting the message out. And if the Jews had not been scattered in the way they were through the Babylonian captivity, and if they had not all come home, and if they had not had this persecution uh, to, to cause them to scatter and to go back wherever their homes were and all, you would not have had the gospel preached in one generation. That those things that were beyond their control, and two of which were negative, actually were in effect in this. And so, at the time, you can only speculate about how many people were complaining and praying, and just as Jesus prayed before his crucifixion and said, if possible, take this cup from me. And you wonder how many there was praying that the persecution might cease or they may not have it. And yet that very persecution was important to the spread of the information itself. And just like when Paul was praying about his uh, physical problem, he didn't realize that that physical problem had a, a spiritual effect that was actually to his good and all the time that he was praying that it might be done away from. So I think it makes, it makes us think twice before we do a lot of worrying or complaining about any situation that if you can honestly say that you love God and you want to do His will and you're trying to do His will and then there are some things happening that may appear to be negative uh, from within that framework of you're trying to do God's will uh, we probably ought to think twice before we complain because a very negative Maybe something that 20 years down the pike you might look at it as a positive experience. And we just don't. You and I are always in a situation where we know, don't know the future, but, but God does all the time. Okay, look at this other uh, statement here. In verse uh, uh, 4, let's see, they were scattered, preached the word, and then we have Philip now. 
uh, went down to the city of Samaria, uh, in Samaria, and proclaimed the Christ there. Now, notice first of all how the message is going out. Remember Jesus said that you would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the othermost parts of the earth. Well, remember Samaria is the capital of the area of the ten tribes. That the ten tribes that were carried into captivity, their capital was at Samaria. And so those people had become intermingled with the people of the land, but they still believed in God and they still believed in Moses. They just simply were wrong on a number of things. And so it'll go into Samaria and into those Jews that had intermingled with through marriages with the, with the Gentiles and then on into the Gentile world. Now, notice, uh, let's see, uh, verse 6. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. But notice that uh, they heard him, and the miraculous signs were a cause, or they're paying close attention to what he had to say, and this is true all the way through here, that it was the, it was the miracle in evidence that caused people to listen very carefully to what he said. We don't have the ability to do miracles today, but I think you can see there something there in the way of evidence that, uh, that it is evidence for, the, for something that causes people to pay close attention to what we've got to say. And I think that uh, one place I marked in here, this book, Evidence and Demands a Verdict, that I thought was good because I believe it isn't, it has hurt Christianity. And uh, he titles this chapter, The Christian Experience. And in the process, though, he quotes what some people think of the Christian experience. But the problem is, uh, what he's quoting, although it's negative, is accurate in much of the Christian world, and, it, and it's a negative thing. He said, uh, many people have the impression that Christian conversion is a psychologically induced experience brought about by brainwashing the subject and persuasive words and emotional presentations of Christian myths. An evangelist is thought of as a psychologist, manipulating the weak, helpless minds into conformity with his own views. Some have even suggested that, suggested that the Christian experience can be explained on the basis of conditioned reflexes. They claim that anyone, after repeated exposure to Christian thought, can be caught in a type of spiritual hypnosis in which he will mechanically react in certain ways under certain conditions. There's a whole lot of truth to that. Uh, a good example that you see in some of your commercials. Uh, Coke just constantly puts her little advertisement through. Coke is the real thing. They make no effort whatsoever to prove any quality to that drink. You know, it's just Coke is a real thing. And the same with any other number of advertisements, whether it's cars or whatever. Most of the time, they just show something before you and make this strong, positive statement with no effort to prove it whatsoever. But from a psychological standpoint, it, it's a proven fact that when people go into the supermarkets, if there's a certain name that has been constantly hit in their mind, they are more apt to pick that product up than something else. And there may be something sitting right next to it that is both better and cheaper, but people are more apt to pick up the name that they have constantly been bombarded with and had put before them. And so, in the same vein, you can see that, uh, look at uh, uh, Christianity as you see it practiced around you. And, and then look at a psychologist 
who is not, not a Christian or a sociologist and who has studied it. And in the process of studying it, they visit Christian assemblies and they watch the TV evangelists. And they watch them work the crowds up to an emotional fever. And then they watch them play on that emotion, emotions and they see them uh, really leading the people into belief and doing whatever they want. And in the process of listening to that talk, they can hear well over 90% of Christian sermons, and I use that in an accommodating sense, and never hear anything that's even close to evidence. It's just a matter of an emotional presentation uh, based on a belief that person already has about heaven and hell and God, and then an emotional appeal to, to the individual. And so you can see again how that that, that is a negative thing from, from a standpoint of Christianity, and a lot of people have negative feelings about Christianity because that's their experience in it. But when we go through the book of Acts, there's not one single solitary time that a person becomes a Christian as a result of an emotional plea. In other words, to, to find a sermon in here where the apostle is getting somebody emotionally worked up and using crowd psychology and all, uh, we just simply couldn't find it. That the sermons are matter-of-fact type of sermons that convey information. And like, of course, on the day of Pentecost, you've got half of the sermon is quoting Old Testament prophecy, giving the interpretation of it, and then giving their eyewitness account of what happened, reminding the people of things they saw, and then based on just pure information. Emotions become involved because of the information, but there's, there's nothing in the information designed at the person's emotion. The, the information uh, is to hit his intellect, but in the process of getting that truth across, the end result is it, it, hits, it hits the emotions also. And all the way through here, just like this, they go and they play co close attention because of the signs themselves. Uh, I think that, uh, that despite all that's said about Christianity today and the hardness of converting people and everything like that, that uh, I really don't believe that people are any different and that people can be converted uh, with, with the evidence itself. Now, the reason we're converting fewer people in Christendom as a whole is because this this emotional plea that was once made depended for its success upon belief. In other words, you already, from your youth, had to have a certain feeling, and, and as a result of so many people that you come in contact with that said this is the real thing, that you had to have a certain emotional feeling in that direction in order for those type lessons to allow you to get caught up in them. But today we're speaking to audiences who not only do not have that emotional feeling, but actually are entering into the discussion with skepticism. And if a person is entering into that arena with skepticism in his mind, then not only is the emotional thing not going to reach him, but it may even turn him off. Uh, that what he, what, the only thing that's going to grab him is, is evidence and information itself. And as he goes in here, we can see that all the way through, whether the audience is Jew or Gentile or the Samaritans, that evidence uh, has its appeal. And it, def it definitely will reach an audience. So the Samaritans, Paul, were, they were Jews, but they weren't keeping the law. They weren't doing things that were commanded in the law. The, uh, right, the, uh, going back to Jeroboam and the split with Israel, remember that after they split the ten tribes, it was still the will of God that they come down and worship in Jerusalem, you know, and keep the law of Moses and all. 
But Jeroboam became scared that uh, the people would go down there and that Rehoboam would win them over. And so he would lose his authority and, and his kingship that he had over the ten tribes. And so he set up uh, replicas of Jehovah in Dan and Bethel. And so they, they then went to Dan and Bethel to worship rather than at uh, Jerusalem. And eventually, of course, Samaria will take over as the place of worship from in the ten tribes. But they still taught the law of Moses. They still taught the Ten Commandments. And they still taught, you know, the belief in Jehovah God and all. Well, then when the Assyrians came in, the Assyrians carried them into captivity, just like the Babylonians did the Jews. Well, when they went into Babylonian captivity, they took whatever scrolls and, and uh, copies of the scriptures that they had and, and whatever information they had with them. And so this concept of Messiah they took into captivity and also the, the Ten Commandments. Well, then a number of them were left there in Samaria. And uh, the Assyrians, when they conquered a country, in order to break their national allegiance, they would take them and transpose them to another area that was new to them, and then they would take other people and transpose them there. And that's so that they wouldn't have any national feeling for that land or anything, and it was easier to control. And so they then brought in other people to Samaria. And when they brought in other people, the Jews that were there of the ten tribes intermarried with them. And so, of course, they broke the law of Moses in doing that. Well, the end result was you have uh, the law of Moses that has been blended with a lot of paganism, but still they have their belief in Jehovah God, and they have their belief in, in the law, even though they may not be keeping it right. And Jesus, remember, gave the example of the Good Samaritan, and then remember when he talked to the Samaritan woman and he said that you people say in Jerusalem but we worship in Samaria. Mm -hmm. and, and so the Jews were right on that. But still, these people had their lineage tied into Israel even though they were half-breeds uh, by the definition of the true Jew. And although the, their scriptures had been corrupted and that they had intermingled with the pagans and all, they still believed in Jehovah for the most part and they still believed in, in that law. Okay, notice something else here in that 8th chapter. With uh, Philip, he is now the second person other than apostle that has performed miracles. Stephen did in the 7th chapter. <coughs> Philip did in the 8th. Up to that point, through the 6th chapter, the only person that had performed any miracle that you've read about was an apostle. But note over here in the 6th chapter... They have the um, debate there over ministering to the, the Jewish widows. And so they're told to pick out seven people. And when they pick them out in verse 5, it says the proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, and it names the others there. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Then you begin to read that uh, Stephen uh, performs miracles, and now we have Philip. And so the, a complete explanation of that laying on of hands is not given there. We just know for the first time we read of somebody else. There may have been others, but we haven't read of anybody except the apostles 
and now Stephen and Philip, and the assumption would probably be that he laid hands on seven, the other five would be, would be doing the same thing. And there could have been others, but at least we know that the hands were laid on them, and now we have the miracles coming forth. And so Philip now is performing these miracles. Okay, let's come on down to verse 9. Uh, Angie and Anita, let's read that 9 through 25. Uh, let's see, split that up right about through verse 17 in one paragraph, and then Anita take that 18 through 25. Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You, ha you have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right with God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the, to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Okay, now, note uh, several things here, that uh, Simon's a sorcerer, and he's practiced sorcery in the city. He's amazed all the people. He boasted that he was someone great. And it says the people, verse 10, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is a divine power. And so obviously he was very astute at this, these things that he's doing, and they have credited divine power to him. But it says they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news, of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ were baptized. And Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished at the great signs and miracles he saw. Now, what we can see there that becomes important in studying with miracles with somebody that's not a Christian, that there's no question that they had sorcerers and magic workers that could deceive people then. There's never been a time that we know of in recorded history where those people didn't exist. They existed all during the time of the prophets, and they exist today. There are people all over that are doing various things that individuals believe that are miraculous in some sense. But it's interesting here that these people didn't have any problem whatsoever seeing the difference in what Simon was doing and what Philip was doing. It reminds me of uh, the time of Moses when the magicians of Egypt were able to do things that had the appearance of being miraculous 
But then when there was a one-on-one -on -one confrontation between them and Moses and Aaron, there was no question in their mind or in the people's mind by the time it was all over that what was happening through Moses and Aaron was a whole lot different than the magical arts that they practiced. And so Simon himself recognizes that there's a tremendous difference. The very fact that Simon is amazed and can't explain this is a very, there's probably not a better witness of these miracles that you could have found than Simon. He knew magic very well, was good at it, and he is absolutely amazed here and believes and becomes a Christian himself, and the other people have no problem see, seeing the difference here. All right, now, uh, Simon, uh, we have these people believe and they're baptized. In Acts 2, we read that people were to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But we didn't find out what exactly what that gift was back then, and we didn't find out how they received it. I mean, if you're going to say that they re repented and were baptized and received the gift of the Holy Spirit without any intervention by an apostle or anything, that's a sheer assumption. That, or, or if you're going to say it took an intervention, intervention of the apostle, that's an assumption. It just doesn't tell you. It just says they were going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We, we get to the 8th chapter. And we found two people other than the apostles that had worked miracles, and each of them had contact with the apostles, and each of them had their hands laid on by the apostles. And here's Philip, and he's performing miracles. But an interesting thing is that when Philip teaches these people, and they repent and are baptized, they don't receive these gifts. And so if Philip has the ability to pass them on, he's not using it. They, they don't receive these gifts at all, and they just stand there and are astounded at Philip. But then we see that the apostles come on the scene. It says, when the apostles in Jerusalem, verse 14, heard that Samaria accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. Well, to my mind, I don't know how much clearer you can make it if you wanted to show that just being baptized did not mean that you were that you just automatically received the Holy Spirit. That if those people on Pentecost who were baptized just received the Holy Spirit, then something happened to them different than what happened right here. Because they had been baptized and they had not received the Holy Spirit. Alright, then it said that Peter and John placed hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And then it says Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on the apostles' hands. And he offered them money and said, Give me this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And so Simon recognized that the apostles could do something that Philip couldn't do. If you wanted, if you were a writer, and you wanted to convey that these gifts were passed on only through the laying on the apostles' hands, I don't know how you could do it any plainer than this in, just, in, in revealing. And if you wanted to make it clear that on Pentecost, that they didn't just receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how you can make it any clearer than right here in that these people had not received the, the Holy Spirit in a miraculous sense. And yet, through the, after the laying on of the apostles' hands, then, then of course, that uh, they have the Holy Spirit also. Another question is, look at, uh, it says, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on them, verse 16, they'd simply been baptized. Okay. Peter and John placed hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. And it says Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of Christ's hands. Notice, if when they laid hands on them, the receiving of the Holy Spirit 
was a, a non-miraculous nature, then how did Simon see this? I mean, something has happened when they lay hands on, Simon recognizes that the, that the Holy Spirit is passed on and he wants this power. Well, what would have happened if they'd laid hands on them and they were just like Simon, and yet they were telling them that they had the Holy Spirit? Well, I don't think Simon would have bought that based on what I've, I've seen of Simon at, at this point. Any comments or questions on what happens in there? Okay, another thing we can see is in the, the uh, all the way through is that even when they perform the miracles now, the effect on the mind always is through information. It's like on Pentecost, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. We never find anybody coming to believe anything until they hear information, but the miracles uh, are evidences that actually grab their attention and cause them to listen very carefully and to recognize that the message itself comes from God. But the effect on their mind, from what we've seen so far, always comes to the information itself. Okay, uh, let's go on down to the 26th. Jack, would you read that? Uh, let's see. Let's divide 26 through about 30, through 33. And then we start a new paragraph. Uh, Louise, read then 34 through the end of the chapter. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he went and met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and say, stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explain it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of this descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch asked, said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he ordered, and he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized them. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at, at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until it reached Caesarea. Okay, uh, the angel of the Lord, the messenger of God, speaks to Philip, tells him to go south on the road. Now we see something interesting here from God knowing all hearts. Uh, 
all indication is that uh, that God knew that this person was going to respond. He specifically has sent Philip out there. Uh, we see something where Jesus said, Seek and ye shall find, and knock and it shall be open, and ask and ye shall receive. Uh, the eunuch does not understand the very thing that he's reading, but he obviously is a devout person. Uh, he's gone down to Jerusalem to worship, and he's very, very sincere, and God is seeing to it that he that he gets the message. All right, when uh, Philip goes there, he's reading uh, from Isaiah. You know, sometimes we uh, teach that as if, you know, the eunuch is there by himself, but for him to be reading, he is a high official. It would be very unusual for a high official to be out there absolutely by himself, and for him to be reading, uh, the in indication to my mind would be that somebody else is, is driving. You know, somebody else has the chariot, and he's sitting back there reading while they're going on their way. But the interesting thing is, nothing is said about the other person, you know, being converted or anything like that. But anyway, he's sitting there reading. Uh, he didn't understand it, and he's reading something that we would have no problem understanding today. He's reading in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter. What would you place there, even though we've looked at that before, I think in all of the Old Testament, and there's nothing more impressive than this passage. Turn over really to Isaiah, the 52nd chapter. Starting with verse 13. Look at that, Isaiah 52 and verse 13. See my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that, for what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought upon us brought us peace was upon him by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who could speak of his descendants? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. 
And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You know, it's interesting to me as I read that. I memorized that in the American Standard Version a multitude of years back, 1901. And it is difficult for me to read that passage because I keep wanting to put it, get ahead of myself and put in in the way it is in the 1901 American Standard Version. And I've noticed that in a, a number of passages that I've memorized over the years. And if I'm reading it in another translation, I'll want to say it the way that I memorized it. Uh, I think you can see that when they even put the 53rd chapter there, they need all to back up to the verse 13, where it all starts. Now, although we've talked about that a lot, and of course the eunuch is, there's no question that in the New Testament, it teaches plainly that this applied to Christ. And we can also see in this context that when he began at that teaching and told him about Jesus, the eunuch had no problem whatsoever recognizing that he was the fulfillment of that, and he wanted to be baptized. But to appreciate that, keep in mind when you read that, number one, Isaiah wrote between 740 and 690 B.C. Even the liberal, the most liberal, unbelieving scholar will acknowledge that, number one, Isaiah in its completed text is one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the manuscript itself is a century to two centuries before Christ, and of course it's a copy. Isaiah is in the Greek Septuagint. It's translated between 280 and 250 B.C. There is absolutely not a single solitary scholar on the face of the earth, atheist, infidel, or anybody who studied, who would say that Isaiah was written after the time of Christ. Voltaire, in a past century, was so absolutely impressed with the messianic statements in Isaiah, and especially the one we just read, that he made the observation as an atheist that if it could be proven that that was written before Christ, that he will acknowledge that that was a valid case of prophecy. Well, he had read the four, four Gospels. When you think about Jesus, in that there never was a personality like him, and you think about the paradox, on the one hand, he's a king, on the other hand, he's a servant. On the one hand, he's a conqueror, on the other hand, he's, he's put to death. And you read through here, and you see this person who is a servant of God, and, and who is a great conqueror, and other people are going to reap benefits because of him. And yet at the same token, he is put down, goes to his death, but yet it's the will of God that he goes to his death. And then it couldn't be any plainer in there, that it was God's will that he goes for his death. It says at a time that he, that he was killed, he would be crucified or, or he would be put to death with transgressors, that he would be buried with the rich, and of course, when you think of the thieves and that were crucified with him, you think of Joseph Armithia, a rich man, that he was uh, buried in his tomb. It said that he would be as a lamb going before the slaughter, and he would be doing it for the sins of other people. And it so perfectly fits what we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the interesting thing is, this conception of the Messiah is not in the mind of any Jew. And to appreciate this, you, whether you're thinking about Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or 
or Shakespeare or whoever it is, any philosopher, there is no such thing as an individual who is 100% original. It just doesn't happen. Uh, we are the product of information that we've come in contact with. We may put it together in a little different way. We may take it a step further, but we just simply don't originate absolutely brand new things that have no connection with the world that we're in. And the interesting thing is that this Messiah that's talked about over here is absolutely 100% different than the Messiah the Jew was looking for. They looked for a son of David to come and just as David rose up and overthrew the Philistines, that he would lead them in rebellion against Rome, they would overthrow Rome, uh, then he would, he would be the king over this great nation of Israel, and all the earth would be blessed because he was king and living there in Israel. And the idea of a man of God coming and suffering and dying and being of such a nature that he was mocked and made fun of and looked down on and, and, and dying for other people wasn't even their thinking. It wasn't in the thinking of anybody that we have record on. And so Isaiah pins this, and the Jew, as he read it through the years, actually recognized it, even though the eunuch now didn't seem to understand much about it. The, when you, the Jewish scholars all through the centuries recognized this as messianic in nature and taught Jewish scholars today. This is interesting to me. Remember, Jack, the uh, program on uh, Ankelberg, where they had a Jewish rabbi debating a a theologian out of the, I believe it was a Nazarene seminary, and it was just very interesting to me to see that that Jewish rabbi acknowledged this as a messianic prophecy, and he acknowledged that it was interesting in this thing about Jesus, and that his only way out of that is that Jesus was one of many messiahs that would come, and we missed the boat in believing he was literally God, but he recognized a very close connection between uh, uh, the Jesus in the New Testament and in this passage right here. Of course, you can multiply this, but I can remember back before I became a Christian, when I read that and thought in terms of the New Testament, you know, it, to my mind, it was like a miracle. It just simply couldn't be unless it was inspired by God. There is no way that somebody could sit down and write this in Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus actually lived. And then, in carrying out the fulfillment of that prophecy, so many things have to happen that's completely contrary to his will. In other words, his crucifixion, put to death with two thieves, buried in a rich man's tomb, conquering of the, uh, the process itself, uh, the fact that he would be a comely man, there was no beauty in him to attract others, the fact that the majority of the Jews would not believe the message, uh, things there that would have actually been the opposite of what the Messiah would have wanted. And you find Jesus even praying that if possible, you know, this cup might be taken from him. But there are things there that were fulfilled that even when Jesus walked this earth, he wanted everybody to believe in him. And he didn't want to be crucified. And he had no knowledge of being put between two thieves or buried in a rich man's tomb that there's so much in here that's contrary to what he as a fleshly man even wanted and totally different than what his apostles expected. Now, I don't believe that you can have a more perfect prophecy. It's more perfect than those prophecies that give you specific facts that everybody perfectly understood at the time. Because on those prophecies, the unbeliever would say, well, the disciples picked that up like a grocery list, and they went about with Jesus fulfilling it. In other words, they read that, that the 
the great prophet was supposed to come into Jerusalem riding on the donkey, and so they rode into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey. Uh, that they read that the prophet was supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and so they looked for somebody born in Bethlehem. And so those factual statements, Jews and unbelievers through the years tried to make it like Matthew and the disciples picked up those prophecies out of the Old Testament like a grocery list. And Jesus went about and fulfilled it. And they, of course, fulfilled it and, and made it that way. The prophecies that have given them fits is the, like the ones we just read. There's just no explanation. There's no, there, it's just there, and you can do it. And, and I never realized how strong it was fully to the Jew until I listened to somebody like a Jewish rabbi trying to explain it and realizing the, more, the, more, the difficulty that he has with that. Okay, back over here in the 8th chapter, he's reading from that. We also see something about coming to understand. When we read something and we don't understand it, it could be that there's just more information out there that we need, mm -hmm. and we see that with unity. The, what helped his understanding was not Philip coming up and saying, well, now this is my view on that. But he gave him information that was true and factual, and that led to his understanding. And I think we see that all the way through. The way a person comes to better understand anything in the Bible or any way else is by giving them more factual information that helps them tie all that in. And I believe really that's the only way, only right way to teach the Bible. If you're going to teach on a passage and there's something about that you don't understand, then we need to go to other parts of the Bible, the meaning of words and things of that nature. To statement, uh, here is water in verse 36. Why shouldn't I be baptized? The implication to my mind is that in preaching to him, he obviously has told him to repent and be baptized. That because why would he ask a question like that? That he hears the sermon and he says, why shouldn't I be baptized? And again, I want to point out that although we've emphasized all the way through that we're saved by grace through faith, and there's no question about that, not of works, unless we mention both, but also that we ought not to back off one bit from any command of God. The baptism is not an interpretation. It's, it's a direct command of God. It's a physical act that pictures a spiritual truth. And in the book of Acts, every single solitary person that repented of his sins and put his trust in Jesus, just as soon as he could get to the water, was baptized. And I don't, I don't know whether anybody today, at least I would never feel comfortable in saying anything that would take away in any sense from that act or even leave the impression in anybody's mind that as soon as you realize you want to become a Christian, you know, you need to, to go ahead and do just exactly what, what they did. Oh, notice verse 38. We mentioned the indication when somebody else is out there. He gave orders to stop the chariot. So obviously that there was somebody with him. But, and then, though, apparently the other person was not reached for whatever reason. Went down into the water, Philip, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. And Philip appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Any comments or observation on that last part? Okay, then notice again what we covered in the 8th chapter. The persecution of the church that actually turns out good for the church. It scatters them. They preach the word. Uh, we see a sorcerer that is converted 
And both he and the others can see a big difference in the miracles taking place in Christianity and the works of sorcery. We also noted that in the context, the Holy Spirit was passed on through the laying on the apostles' hands. Uh, according to Simon's observation, that's the only way that he knows of that it was passed on. And then with the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, he's studying a prophecy of Jesus. He is fully convinced uh, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And we noted that those are just two verses, verses 7 and 8 of an entire section that applied to the Messiah, one of the most fantastic prophecies uh, in the Old Testament. A miracle in words. Notice also, there's no recorded miracle for the eunuch. Uh, miracles are evidence. Prophecy and its fulfillment is evidence. That when he was studying, uh, the indication in my mind is, that uh, eunuch was a devout believer in God, a devout believer in the prophets, uh, looking for the Messiah, has gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he knew that Isaiah was written back there. I mean, after all, he's reading it there in the first century. And once he became convinced that all of this was the fulfillment of that, there was no doubt in his mind. There was no reason for anything. In other words, we see the, that they weren't done, at least in my judgment, unless there was a need for them. And in this case, just the fulfillment of that prophecy was all it took for the eunuch. And he was absolutely convinced and then he went ahead. I think the, the same thing today. That a miracle would be fine. I have no objection to seeing a miracle. In fact, I, in, in all honesty, I guess I'm like anybody else. I'd like to see one. But on the other hand, obviously, when you consider the plurality of testimonies, the completed volume, the prophecy, the multitude of evidences that you have access to that they didn't have when the miracles were taking place, and you consider the fact that obviously it's sufficient because, you know, I ask myself the question anyway, would I believe any stronger, you know, if I saw a miracle now? My answer is no. You know, it would, it would, it would sort of be like another archaeological discovery to me. It would be impressive. It would reinforce. Uh, but, you know, it, it wouldn't, uh, I don't know how more impressive than what we just read in the 53rd chapter or the Apostle Paul that we're going to study in the next chapter or anything like that, I, I can't really say. And I, and I can say when I look at the, the world through the past 2,000 years that we have never lacked for individuals who have had enough faith based on the Scriptures that they were willing to sacrifice their lives and do what's necessary to take that message throughout the entire world and change their entire life. We've never... We've never lacked for whatever produces, you know, that kind of faith. And so when you reach a point where you can add to it, and that's interesting, but I don't know that you would, you know, accomplish any more. Any, uh, any other comment?